today we read of a woman who cried out after your son, our Father, and she pled for mercy and for help. We plead for mercy and for help. Your word goes out today here and in many places, and as it does, we pray for your power to accompany. Otherwise, it is just words. We pray for your power here and in every place where your word is preached in truth. Encourage and strengthen weak souls, embolden faint hearts, open lost eyes, all for your glory, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. common religious phrase one hears is prayer changes things. I think you even see that on a bumper sticker. Prayer changes things. Is that true? It is not. Prayer doesn't change things. Prayer is just us talking to God. And if it's just us talking to God, that's just words. And words don't change things. In fact, if we are unbelievers and we're asking God to do more things for us than he's already doing, that's an offensive act. However, God changes things, and the way God changes things is in response to his children's prayer. His decrees for his plans include answering the prayers of his saints. But what happens when he doesn't seem to hear, when we have an urgent need that we come to him and press on him, and he seems to turn a deaf ear? We have just such a case before us today in this narrative of a very vivid meeting between a Canaanite woman and our Lord Jesus. There's so much in here, in fact, that we're going to go over this twice. Today, mostly by way of exposition to bring out the meaning of the words, and next week we'll look at more application, what we learn from it and what to do about it. So, a number of startling moves in this story. Let's look first, Roman numeral 1, at a startling departure. We read about that in verses 21 and 22a. As usual, I've given you a translation of the Greek text in your outline. And coming out from there, Jesus departed into into the parts of Tyre and Sidon. This is uh, not in itself startling that he should depart. We actually read a number of times in the Gospel of Matthew where uh, Jesus departs or is made to depart a location to avoid a premature showdown when he was just a child in Matthew 2.14. Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and departed for Egypt. Why? To flee from the wrath of Herod the Great, who would then kill the children two years old and under. Uh, Matthew 2.22, when his uh, stepfather Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee, another departure ahead of violence and to avoid violence. In Jesus' own mystery, Matthew, ministry, Matthew 4.12, when Jesus uh, heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee, away from what had happened. In Matthew 12.15, Jesus was aware that the Pharisees were beginning to plot how to destroy him. And he withdrew. He departed from there. Same word in Greek. And more recently in chapter 14, verse 13, when he'd heard about John, he departed from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So what all of these are is they're strategic strategic retreats in the face of uh, a premature showdown. And there was an exact time set by the Father when that would happen. And when that time came... 
he would walk right into it, but it wasn't that time yet. And so he departed. And so we read it here as well in verse 21. He withdrew. He departed from the region where what had just happened. Now remember, these stories are not just floating in the air. Matthew has put them in his narrative. So we look at the start of the chapter. And in in 15.1, the top men had come down from Jerusalem to ask about the purification and the respect for traditions among Jesus' disciples. And he answered them very directly and fired straight back at them. And his disciples told him in verse 12 that he had offended them. And so he withdrew from that area to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. So this is really important. This is not a minor thing to notice that he had left the land of the Jews for this land because of the rejection and the hostility of what should be the people of God in the land of Israel. So he departed, we read, into the parts of Tyre and Sidon. Now that is startling. He's leaving Jewish lands for Gentile lands. And not just Gentile lands, but Matthew tells us Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre is about 25 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Sidon's another 25 miles north of that. It's well out of, out of the region that he'd been in. It's what we would call Lebanon and Syria today. A round trip could have taken months. So it was a while out of the area where he'd been. But the connotations of Tyre and Sidon that Matthew pairs together would be very familiar to an Old Testament reader. These were old enemies of Israel. In fact, there are a number of oracles directed at Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament prophets, whole chapters. Isaiah 23 is an oracle against Tyre. Ezekiel chapter 26 through 28 is an oracle against Tyre, and in fact works into an oracle against Satan, the king of Tyre, as part of that. Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 1, and on and on are oracles directed against Tyre and Sidon. And so, yet Jesus heads into this area. One commentator uh, says that this is code for pagan land. When you say Tyre and Sidon to a reader of Jesus' day, you're basically saying pagan land. Josephus, the historian who lived just after Jesus, called Tyre notoriously our bitterest enemies. Now, now just step back and think. This is a startling development. You would think, where would you think that the Jewish Messiah would be the most welcome? Should be in Israel. And who should most welcome him? Should be the guys from Jerusalem, the leaders of the religion of the nation. And yet he's leaving that area because of their rejection and their hostility and their unbelief. And he's going off to pagan land. The Jewish Messiah heading off for Tyre and Sidon. That is pretty startling. So now that we understand the place he's gone, let us give, let us give attention. That's the place, letter A, verse 21, the place. Letter B, the person, verse 22a. He meets a very vivid person as he comes into this region. Mark tells us he goes into a house and comes out of the house and is met by this person. We read, as I've translated for you, and look, a Canaanite woman from those regions came out and kept crying out. We'll just pause there. And look, Matthew says. Now, don't just skip that. Don't not translate it as sometimes versions do. He's saying, brace yourself. He's saying, now this is something startling. This is something to sit up and take note of. He's, he's saying, you'll never believe this, basically. Watch this. This is amazing. Look, he says, a Canaanite woman 
from those regions. So she's a woman, which in that day, women were not first-class citizens and were not looked to for much wisdom. But not just a woman, she's from the regions of Israel's enemies. She is from there. She's from the regions of Tyre and Sidon. But wait a minute, go back. What does Matthew call her? She's a woman, and what kind of woman? A Canaanite woman. Now, that's an anachronism. Nobody calls anybody a Canaanite at that day because there's no entity called Canaanites. There's no people called Canaanites. In fact, Mark doesn't call her a Canaanite. Mark calls her a Greek, a Syrophoenician woman. That's a more current way of describing her. She speaks Greek. She's a Syrophoenician. But Matthew calls her a Canaanite. And why does he call her a Canaanite? Well, it's a sinister term with sinister connotations. Canaanites were Israel's long-standing historical enemies. And they were supposed to be destroyed. I'll just give you a few verses that give you a flavor for this. When uh, Abraham wants to make an arrangement for his son's marriage, Genesis 24.3, he tells the servant, uh, I will make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. And this woman is a daughter of the Canaanites, Matthew tells us. But they're not acceptable. Deuteronomy 20:17. more we read, But you shall devote them to destruction, the Hittite and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, as Yahweh your God has commanded you. <clears throat> so Israel was supposed to wipe them out in coming into the land of Canaan. One more verse. That was Genesis 24:3, then Deuteronomy 20:17, And now Joshua 3.10, Joshua said... By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from among you the Canaanite. So the Canaanite was supposed to be wiped out of the land. And here is a woman, and this woman is, Matthew tells us, a Canaanite. He deliberately uses that Old Testament connotation term that was not in common use. Can we think of anything like that? Well, sure. If somebody was from Russia and we call that person a Soviet, you understand? There'd be connotations to that. That's not a contemporary term anymore. But calling him a Soviet would be to invest him with some sort of sinister uh, garb by what we call him. And so Matthew does that with her. She's a woman from those regions. In fact, she is a Canaanite, he says. So this is utterly unpromising. And I want you not to forget the contrast. Where does the chapter start? Matthew 15, 1. Who do we see? Oh, look, who's coming? These are guys. Where are they from? They're from Jerusalem. Oh, well, these are the top men. We should expect them to be the best of the best. We should expect them to have the very words of God guiding them, to to have the love of God inflaming their heart. They should be there to see Jesus and speak to him of his person and his mission and the word of God and and how they can believe and repent and be part of what he's... That's what we would expect. But then we go on to read a very different story. And now we see this woman and what she. Well, she's a woman and she's a Canaanite woman. She's from Israel's ancient enemy who was supposed to be wiped out. Their their most sworn enemy, the Canaanites. Surely we can't expect anything from her, right? We we don't expect to hear anything good out of her, find anything good in her. Uh, We'd be very startled to read something good coming out of her. Well, prepare to be startled. As the rest of the story goes on, we read this Canaanite woman came out. Now, it's a normal enough word, except that Matthew had just used that a cluster of times. 
Let me take you back to chapter 15, verse 18, and I've included it in your outline so you can glance at it there to make sure you're in a translation that shows you it's the same word each time. Verse 18, <clears throat> talking about the cleanliness, the, the, the cleanness laws that the Pharisees were so concerned about. But the things going out of the mouth come out from the heart. There's one. And those things do defile the man. For from the heart come out, there's two, wicked arguments, murders, adulteries, immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. Now, we talked when we studied that about the fact that this denotes the heart of men. We also talked about the fact that this is the sort of thing that was coming out of the mouths of the Pharisees and the scribes, the supposed religious leaders, that blasphemies and lies were coming out of their mouths. And so in the face of their rejection, and their unbelief, we read in verse 21, coming out from there, Jesus departed. So because of what's coming out of their mouths and their hearts, you could say, Jesus comes out from that region. And in the region that he goes to, here comes out a woman. So now what's going to come out of her mouth? This Canaanite woman, what are we going to hear coming out from her heart and through her mouth? Well, we're going to hear some startling things as we go on. Roman numeral 2 brings us to a startling dialogue, verses 22b through 28a. And that really is the rest of the chapter, of the section, this portion. It's a dialogue or a series of dialogues. Let's talk first about its composition. How did Matthew set this up? Well, he set it up in a very striking way. You'll notice you could later go through your uh, translation there and make little labels and you'll see it for yourself. The composition Matthew uses is four pairs. In these four pairs, someone speaks, Jesus responds. Someone speaks, Jesus responds. Someone speaks, Jesus responds. And someone speaks and Jesus responds four times, four pairs here, four pairs of pleads, pleas and responses. And so the effect of Matthew putting it this way to us is it makes it a very vivid, moving, arresting scene. Nothing drags, no spare words. It's a very, very vivid, memorable, and instructive encounter we read about here. That's the composition. So now letter B, let's look closely at its components. And its components are four sets of pleas and responses. That's the components. So first, number one, the woman and Jesus, verses 22B and 23A. And as in each of them, first we have the plea in verse 22B. This woman came out and kept crying out saying, show me mercy. We'll just go that far for a moment. She kept crying out, saying, show me mercy. Crying out. In other words, she was, brace yourself, yelling. She wasn't just politely saying, uh, oh, please, you know, it'd be nice if you could spare me a little mercy. She was saying, show me mercy. Show me mercy, Lord, son of David. Show me mercy. Again and again and again, she kept crying out, saying, show me mercy. So this yelling shows the urgency of her need. This was not a form. This came from her heart, from a passionate, concerned, anxious heart. And she has to yell out because she's distant and she's behind. We read that in the words that follow. She's, going, she's yelling behind us the disciples say. So they're walking on and she's behind them, yelling after them. And when she comes to talk to Jesus, she has to come in front of him. So she's some distance and behind, but she's making sure she's heard. 
She's yelling over and over, show me mercy, Lord, son of David. Show me mercy. Now, here's an interesting thing. Let's look at that. Show me mercy. We read in Mark's parallel, in Mark chapter 7, that she had heard about Jesus. She'd heard about Jesus. Now, you might read that and think, oh, she heard he was there. Okay, yeah. So maybe she didn't know much about him. Oh, I think she knew a good deal about him. I think there's revealed in these few words. Remember, Matthew wrote this expecting us to read it and keep in mind what he'd read. He expected it to be read in a sitting or two. Yes, we will preach through it in four or 5,000 sermons maybe. But he expected the gospel to be read and us to remember what had gone before. So uh, what does she say to Jesus? She says, show me Well, of all the things she could say, she says, show me mercy. Why did she particularly uh, choose to approach him pleading for mercy? Did she know that that was a big thing with Jesus? Had she heard that in the Sermon on the Mount, he had said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy? Did she know that was a big thing? Or had she heard of the recent uh, clashes with the Pharisees? Matthew 9.13. Matthew 9.13, he says to these pompous prigs, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, the Greek text says, and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Had, had this Gentile woman heard that? Did that stick in her mind about this Jewish Messiah she was hearing about? That he talked to the religious leaders who would have hated her and rejected her and excoriated her, and he told them to go look up their Old Testament. Maybe sit down and read the Old Testament for a time. There's a novel idea. Sit down and look up this Bible verse. I desire mercy, God says, and not sacrifice. I've come to call sinners and not the righteous, Jesus said. Had she heard that and had her eyes light up when she heard it? Because it was not just once, was it? That was 9.13, but in 12.7, they failed the test. They never did their homework. And so in 12.17, he says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So does she go to mercy because she knows that mercy is a big thing with Jesus? Well, regardless, the, the for sure thing to notice here is, is she bargaining with Jesus or is she begging? Well, she's just begging. She doesn't offer him anything. She doesn't say, I deserve this. She doesn't say, you owe this to me. She doesn't say, you ought to show me mercy. She just begs for mercy. And, and what is mercy? It is grace shown to a miserable person. It is grace and help given to someone in misery. And so in saying this, she says she's in misery. And she just pleads with him to help her. He, he, she is not uh, approaching him as someone who is a peer and an equal and in position to make demands. She's got no argument. She's got no credentials. She's, she's got no, nothing to trade with. She just pleads for mercy. Now, once again, contrast that with the, with the boys from Jerusalem at the start of the chapter in verse 1. So these top men come down from Jerusalem. They're Pharisees and they're scribes. They're experts in the law of God, supposedly. And why are they there to see the Messiah about? Are they, to, are they there to ask for mercy? Are they there to ask for his mercy? To ask for help repenting and being right with God? What are they there for? You're not following our traditions. You don't wash your hands like you're supposed to. Ha! All the pressing issues in this 
fallen, sad old world, and they want to talk about the fact that the disciples don't purify their hands correctly at mealtime. That's their big issue. What a contrast Matthew is setting before us. The people of whom you should expect so much, and some woman from whom you should expect, well, really, you wouldn't expect anything. But she begs for mercy. She just comes and begs for mercy. She does it over and over again, and she does it at the top of her lungs. Bless her. Show me mercy, she says. She says, show me mercy, Lord, son of David, she says. She calls him Lord three times in this narrative. That's a big thing for her. She calls him Lord. Does she mean it? What did Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of my Father two times. She says it three times. What's the problem with the people who say it twice? Well, they don't really mean it. They don't do the will of his Father in heaven, Jesus says. Well, does she mean anything by saying it three times? We're going to see whether she means something. We will see. The words that follow will show us whether she means anything by it. But she calls him Lord, and we'll call him Lord two more times. And she calls him Son of David. Now, Lord obviously at least shows her great respect for him. At the very least, Lord means he's a person of authority to her. It can also mean God. It's the title of God. But we aren't sure. We just know that she means it as a title of great authority. But son of David, now what does that mean? Is that just a, a little thing like you call me Phillips or I call you, you know, Birkenheimer or whatever your last name is? Is it just meaningless like that? Son of David, what's that? That's a messianic title. Could Matthew expect us to have that in our minds? I think he could. What's the first verse in his gospel? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And that phrase occurs a number of times in will in the gospel to denote the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, who would be the Messiah of Israel. It's a big deal. Is it startling to hear those words? Not per se. Is it startling to hear those words from a Soviet, from a Canaanite? Well, yes, that's rather, rather startling to hear not just a Gentile, but a Canaanite say, Lord, son of David. Oh, I think she'd heard quite a bit about Jesus. I think she'd heard quite a bit about Jesus that moved her to come out with the conviction that this was the only person who could help her. In fact, I wonder if she'd heard a very similar story, very similar story. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. And if I can get my big sausagey fingers to take me there. Matthew chapter 9 and verses 27 and 28. And it's Matthew 8. That's so close. Matthew 9. So he's just uh, on his way and uh, to see a girl who died and uh, raised her from the dead. And as he's coming back from that, Matthew 9, 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Was <laughs> that familiar? That's just what she says, isn't it? Well, you say, well, she also said, Lord. Oh, read on. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Well, that's really something, isn't it? That's a very similar story. Had she heard about Jesus raising this girl from the dead? 
And had that made her think about her poor daughter so viciously oppressed by a demon? And she had she heard about these two socially worthless blind men following behind him, pleading for mercy from the son of David and calling him Lord? Well, given that Matthew's writing this and putting it all close together, I don't think that's an unreasonable thought to think that this is part of what she had heard about him. So very similarly, she cries out, cries out again and again, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. For my daughter is badly demonized, she says. Now she says, show me mercy, but who's she there for? Her daughter. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? And every mother in the building says, that makes perfect sense, young man, (laughs) old man. That makes perfect sense. If you've got a little girl, and we don't know the age of her daughter, but if you've got a daughter of any age, and she's going through something, who's going through it right with her? Her mother. And so she says, have mercy on me. And the best way to have mercy on me is to help my daughter. So, so deep is her misery. I think in some ways the person who loves the person suffering goes through more emotional anguish than the actual person because of all the imagination does. It's a great misery to be going through an awful time with someone you care about and who more than your, your child. This is her daughter, and she sees her daughter oppressed by a a mighty supernatural power that is evil and means her only harm and that she has nothing she can do about. She has nothing to do. There's no medicine. There's no change of clothes. There's no change of diet. None of that's going to help at all. She has to see it again and again. Not just demon-oppressed. That's bad enough. Badly demon-oppressed, she says. Badly demonized. So she's heard of one person who can help her. What has she tried before? We don't know. We don't know, but she has the conviction that this is someone who can. She obviously knows things about him, and it's convinced her that he can help her if he'll show mercy. And so she pleads for mercy from the Lord, the son of David. And what's the response? You thought we'd had all the startling parts of this story? Oh, we're just getting started. What's the response? Verse 23a. But he did not answer her a word. She's gone up to the store. She's gone up to the pharmacy needing the life-saving medicine, and the sign on the door says, closed, and the lights are out. Or perhaps even worse, she sees the pharmacy staff inside, but they're not turning around. They're busy closing up. They got no time for her. She's called. No one's picking up. She's knocked on the door. The lights aren't even on. There's no response. Now that's startling. That's startling. Did he hear her? Oh, yes, he heard her. Everybody heard her. Everybody in that area heard her. the, The disciples are about to complain about that. Everybody heard her. He heard her, but he doesn't answer at all. Now listen, and let's just go right through this. I mean, it's in the Bible. I'm not talking, talking out of term. It's right there in Scripture, so let's face it. She has spoken urgently. She's spoken respectfully. She's spoken humbly. As a Gentile to the son of David, she's spoken insistently. She's spoken out of deep need. She's thrown himself on her mercy. And his response is dead silence. Not a word. Not a glance. Now, isn't this the point at which the internet atheists would go off in a storm? 
and start tweeting about how they prayed and God didn't answer, so there's no God? They prayed and God didn't answer, so there's no God? Isn't this just right at the point where atheists have uh, conclude there is no God? I had a need. I came to God. I asked him to do something. He didn't. So there is no God. Would they blame her if she'd done the same thing? Uh, But now let me ask you. What if she had at this point concluded? She's made her case. She's clearly been heard. She's made the best case she's got. And there's no response So suppose she simply had turned around and gone back home. What would she have? Well, she'd have her pride. He had been insulting to her, she could say. He'd been insulting and indifferent. What kind of person does that? She'd have her pride. What else would she have? Her demonized daughter. So she doesn't turn around and she doesn't walk away. But what she does is got to wait a minute because that's not what Matthew wants to tell us about next. (laughs) The second plea comes from the disciples, not her. Number two, the disciples and Jesus, verses 23b and 24. The plea is in verse 23b, and his disciples came up and kept making requests of him saying, dismiss her because she keeps crying out from behind us. That's where I get. She was behind them. They're moving this way, and she's right behind them, crying out, crying out, crying out. And they're saying, dismiss her. Now, she wants something. She wants mercy for her daughter. They want something, too. They want her gone. They want her got rid of. They, they want her not troubling them anymore. They see her as a bother, and they want the bother gone. They see her as a nuisance. They want the nu- nuisance dealt with. Now, how do they mean that? Many, many commentators have said what they mean is, heal her so she'll leave. And then others don't think that they're saying, they're just saying, send her away. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say what they're, what they're meaning by it. Um, he's never turned anyone away before. So it could, could very well be that they're saying, look, just throw the demon out of her da- daughter and get her out of here. Whatever it is, get rid of her. They say, they say to him, Uh, get rid of her. And what's his response in verse 24? And in answer, he said, I was not sent except unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, who's he talking to? Honestly, it's hard to say. Is he talking to him, uh, her, pardon me, or is he talking to the disciples? I've always taken it that he just sort of answers them, but loudly enough that she will hear, with the intent that she will hear this response. At any rate, she does hear the response. But he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now this is not an encouraging response, is it? From her perspective. So he doesn't talk to her. And then he says, she's not one of the people I was sent to help. I was sent to help the lost sheep of Israel. And she's not that. She's a Soviet. She's a a Canaanite. So... Uh, whoever he's talking to, the fact of the matter is she does hear and she jumps on what he says like a dog on a scrap. Look at number three, third, the woman in Jesus, verses 25 and 26. Jesus has spoken and that's all the invitation she needs. She's heard him say something about her. So verse 25, she comes and begins bowing down to him saying, Lord, help me. 
So she's been behind and away. Now she comes up and in front, and she bows down, perhaps even worships, but she's at least bowing down respectfully and reverently to him. And for the second time, she says, Lord. And this time, she just flat out begs for help. She's just asking for help. And she's asking for help from the only person she has any hope of getting help from. Whatever she's tried before, it's not been of any help. So she has hopes that he will help. So she bows down to him, signaling her absolute submission to him. She calls him Lord, indicating her submission to him, but she still is going to ask. She's still doggedly going to cling to this one hope she's got, and she asks for help. Well, what's the response now? Verse 26, but he in answer said, it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. (laughs) Yikes! Yikes! Does that fit the sentimental image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, always doing sweet and... I mean, this is harsh. Doesn't it seem... Oh, you're afraid to say it in church. It sure seems harsh. (laughs) It seems harsh. She's begging for help, and he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. What's he after here? We'll see. We'll see. Dogs is a very bad image in the Bible. Dogs are almost always a bad image. Uh, Just a few verses, Exodus 22, 31. You shall be holy men to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. Throw it to the dogs. (laughs) They'll eat anything. Well, there's a nasty little image. Exodus 22, 31. 1 Samuel 17, 43. Goliath seeing this punt kid coming up with, a, with a, a staff and a sling. And he says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? So a dog is a lowly contemptible thing. Psalm 59, 6. The evildoers return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. Now, there's a very bad connotation, Psalm 59.6. And Jesus, in fact, had spoken of dogs in the, gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that? What does he say about dogs? Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. That's what a dog will do. He'll turn and tear you to pieces. But this isn't dogs. I hope you're all thinking that. You keep saying dogs, but this didn't say dogs. No, this said little dogs. It's a diminutive form of the word. The Greek word for dog is kion. This is kinarion, which means a little dog, a doggy, a puppy, a house dog. Not one of these fierce mongrels that go around being scary and nasty, but a dog that's in the house. So it's, it's not meant as a harsh insult the way it sounds. Little dogs, he says, they're in the house, but they don't get the children's bread. You don't take the bread from the children and give them to the little dog. So it's not insulting, but it is meant to put her in her place. And it does indicate she's not of the children. And indeed she's not. She's a Canaanite. She's not of the sons of Israel. And that's what he's saying. It's not good to take the bread of the little children, in other words, the Messiah of the Jews, and throw him to the little dogs, in other words, Canaanites. So that brings us to the fourth and perhaps most startling. Number four, the woman in Jesus. She hears him say this, and she catches it, and she just jumps right on it like a dog on a scrap. She jumps right on what he says. So we have the plea in verse 27. But she said, Yes, Lord, for in fact the little dogs eat from the little crumbs which fall from the table of their masters. 
He's left her an opening and she jumps on it. She agrees with him. And so you see, she does mean it when she says, Lord. She's not going to argue with him. She agrees with him. That's right. It's not right to take the bread of the children and give it to the little dog. She agrees she's a little dog. She agrees she's not one of the children. But she says, little dogs still are part of the house. And they still do eat. And what they eat is what falls off their master's table. No, no, I'm not saying take the bread away from the children and give it to the dogs. But surely a little dog can have a little crumb, she's saying. This is what she seizes on, and this is what she turns around, and it tells us so much about her faith. She meant it when she called him Lord. She doesn't respond in injured pride. She doesn't rage about how he's insulted her. She doesn't defend herself. No, she submits himself to her judgment and calls him Lord and does it without hesitation and without self-defense. But she does turn right around and aim straight at his heart. Surely you don't mean to starve the little doggies. Surely you don't mean the little doggies not to have anything to eat. Surely little doggies can have little crumbs. And that's a diminutive too. The word for crumb is psix, and this is psychion, means a little crumb. So she's just asking for a little crumb, one little crumb for one little dog. That's what she's asking for. So in effect, think of what she's, what she's saying when she characterizes what she's asking as a little crumb. For everyone else in the world, what she's asking for is an impossibility. Nobody can do this, but for Jesus, just a little crumb. For him to cast out a cruel and powerful demon, just a little crumb. So high is her view of him. And so does she catch his heart, because what she's saying to him is, surely you can find in your great kind heart the mercy to give a little crumb to a little dog. And what's his response? Verse 28. Then in answer, Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you wish. This is what he's been aiming for. And she has overcome him, as Spurgeon says, as he intended her to, as was his design to the benefit and instruction of everybody and to her good as well. You know, not much surprises Jesus. (laughs) Mostly what surprises Jesus is bad things. Like in Mark 6, we read that Jesus is surprised at their unbelief. Uh, And when when he comments on the faith of the disciples, what's the little word that he coined that he uses for them? Little faith. He made that word up for them. Little faith. He just said that to Simon. He called them little faith. Yet here he marvels at what? Her great faith. She has great faith. Now, don't forget the setting. Where did the chapter start? Started with the grandees from Jerusalem, of whom you would expect great faith, devoted themselves to the study of the law and the rabbis. Their very way of dressing and carrying themselves says to everybody how holy and how righteous and how pious they are. And boy, if they ever do an act of mercy, everybody knows it. And yet, confronted with Messiah, their response is hatred and blasphemy and rejection and 
All they care about is the little picky violations of their traditions that they might catch him for. That's all they care about. And here's this Canaanite woman. And she, unlike them, she shows great faith. She alone, she catches, she gets him, we could say. Doesn't she? She gets that he's Lord. They don't. She gets that he's son of David. They don't. And they get what a merciful Savior he is. And boy, did they need that, but they didn't. And so he, she catches on what he says, and he says, yep, but the little dogs do eat. They eat the crumbs. Can't this little dog have a little crumb? And he says, your faith is great. Let it be to you as you wish. This has happened once before, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, and to a Gentile. We'll look at that in just a moment. But let's come to the closing room in numeral three, a startling disposition, as if we haven't been startled enough in this story. Verse 28b tells us, and her daughter was cured from that moment. Now you having read the gospel many times, you, you, you figure, well, that's the only way the story could end. But pretend you'd never read it. <laughs> Daughter's not even there. But all, all Jesus has to do is say it. Because indeed, she's right. <laughs> For him, it is just a little crumb. All he has to do is say it, and it happens. What nobody else could do, he does with a word. He, wouldn't, he didn't answer a word at the start of the story, but now he answers a word. And that word is all it takes to free this poor child, this poor young lady, from the demon that had so hopelessly oppressed her. So yes, it is startling that he gives her what she's been craving and begging for and gives it with just a word. Now, this has happened before. Look at Matthew chapter 8. I don't know if you're still open to 9. If so, it'll be really easy to look at 8. Look there. Chapter 8 and verse 5, Jesus entered Capernaum. A centurion came to him, pleading with him. Remind me, where do centurions come from? Rome, not Jerusalem. They're Gentiles from Rome, and here's the centurion begging, Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. She's got a daughter who's badly demonized. He's got a servant paralyzed, fearfully tormented. And Jesus in the LSB says, I will come and heal him, or perhaps ask, am I to come and heal him? as I suggested when we were there. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Well, what had he said in verse 6? He called Jesus Lord. And then in verse 9, he explains that he knows what he means when he says Lord. He sees Jesus as a person with authority. And so, uh, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. I said he didn't marvel much, but here's another time when he marveled. And at what is he marveling? He marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west. Well, west, that's where Tyre and Sidon are, northwest. And recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, oh, isn't that interesting, the sons of the kingdom. How else might you say that? The children, right? Shouldn't take the children's bread and give it to the doggies. 
but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out to the outer darkness. And there's the great irony of this story. Why is Jesus even there? Because the children don't want their bread. The children don't want their bread. The sons of the kingdom aren't interested in their Messiah. That's why he's withdrawn there to Tyre and Sidon of all places. So he says the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so he says to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment, just as happened with the daughter of the Canaanite woman. And so what happened in this dialogue here, Jesus illustrates again very at great graphic length in his dealing with this woman where he draws out of her such expression of faith to teach everybody about what faith really is and what faith really involves, you see. So the bread had been laid out for the children, the Jewish children. It was theirs by promise. It was theirs according to prophecy. And you could expect them to dig in with gusto, especially the top men from Jerusalem at the start of the chapter. They of all people should be the first to belly up to the table and and tuck in, right? But how have they responded with rejection and blasphemy? And In fact, look at chapter 11 with me. Let me show you another little funny thing here. At absolutely no extra charge. In chapter 10, he sent them out on this mission. In chapter 11, verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. The children wouldn't eat their bread. They did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in, who does he say? (laughs) In Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And what do we see here in chapter 15? Well, I'll be. It's someone from Tyre and Sidon showing genuine repentant faith in him, just like he'd said. And she does it before he's done a miracle for her. What does that make them look like for not being interested in their Messiah? So, they've not responded. The children haven't. But who does respond in the Gospel of Matthew? Fringe people. Fringe people. Lepers, unclean women, centurion, Canaanite woman. Fringe people, nobodies, unclean, sinister, evil Gentiles. Even a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon, they respond, and they all find him to be Lord, and they all find him to be merciful, and they all find him to be mighty to save. So I think, this is my theory, that the reason why Jesus went to this odd, peculiar spot of all the places he could have retreated to was to see that woman and have this dialogue so that we could learn from it. So this woman has shown, I would say, persistent uphill faith. (laughs) This was an uphill push for her. It was not easy, her journey with Jesus. It was not easy, but it had a glorious conclusion and a glorious resolution. She had no outward advantages, and she had great inward need, and she met with no encouragement initially at all. In fact, she met with discouragement. She met with hurdles and obstacles, and yet she persisted, in deep, strong, persistent, insistent faith to get to the heart of Jesus, and she did. And her example encourages us, 
and her example instructs us. And Lord willing, we will look at what it teaches us more deeply and how to apply it next week. But I, I do want to say right now, because I don't know all of you and I don't know any of your hearts, my heart is a puzzlement enough, but perhaps you're somebody who thinks, well, I, I love hearing about Jesus, but I know I could never have anything to do with him because my sin, my sin is too great. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know about my sin. Well, I don't. I may be grateful that I don't. I'm grateful you don't know about mine. But I do know this. For Jesus to cleanse someone of sin, it's a little crumb. It's a little crumb. And he's a great and mighty Savior. And he calls, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He calls. So let us, like the woman, simply come, cry out for mercy, and know what it is to know such a merciful, powerful Savior. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great word and this great vivid picture. And my prayer is that you will use it powerfully in in the life of every person here. Those far from you, bid them come and welcome to Jesus Christ without any hesitation or delay. Those who are weak and discouraged, let them see what it is to persist in faith and to persist to the heart of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this and we thank you for the privilege of gathering before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before you stand to sing the closing song, I do want to warn you, we've sung this before, and after we sang it, a sister told me that she, she seemed to have an allergy to it because it, it made her eyes water up and made her throat all tight. So I'm just warning you of possible allergic reactions. It's perfectly natural. Do not be alarmed. Please stand and we'll sing together, Does Jesus Care? <laughs>